This is Vintage Broadcasting. The following is a study through the book of Philippians. My name is Frank Goss. I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come. I thank you very much. There are a number of people who are asking with sincere hearts what Christianity is. What is Christianity? Can you explain it to me? Well, stop and think about it. Can you explain Christianity to somebody who is seriously wanting to know what it is? What do you tell them? Well, Paul had this. He said in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To hear this question explained by the secular crowd can leave you wondering if Christianity can be defined at all. The secular crowd comes away with a multitude of different definitions trying to give meaning to a hollowed-out religion that they embrace. To the child of God, the one who's truly born by the Spirit of God, the answer is well known, and it's very clear and simple. Christianity is Christ. It's a person. Everything that is properly defined as Christian finds its origin in Christ. To take Christ, the divine, away from Christianity, or to strip his divinity, is to disembowel Christianity. Then it becomes a hollowed-out religion that the secular crowd tries to explain, and it is of no value to anybody. There is quite a bit of fake news about Christianity. A lot of people do not realize this. They see the pageantry, they hear the music, they marvel at the architecture, and they think they understand all about Christianity, the magnitude and the depth of it all. They're overwhelmed with all the grandeur of it all. But that is a passing emotion, and it is not a soul-satisfying knowledge that only a personal experience can provide. Years ago, Russia was going to study the planet Venus. So they built a space probe that was designed to crash on the surface of Venus, and from there, the scientists would monitor atmospheric pressure, surface density, and the temperature variations as the planet rotated. The data they received was fantastic, astounding. It was incredible. And it was all very, very solid and unquestionable information, for the probe was there on site. The data was being thoroughly examined by the Russian scientists. Every bit was being analyzed. And it was a global excitement. The scientific world was looking forward to all the information that would be provided. Then suddenly, the probe quit working. It quit transmitting. It had actually quit working while it was 15 miles above the surface of Venus. The information which was being gathered was actually 15 miles above the planet, so it didn't provide the information the scientists most wanted to know. They thought what they were seeing was fact, but they were deceived. They were close. Granted, they were closer than any other information ever gathered throughout history. But their knowledge was incomplete. It was not accurate. And thus, all of their summations and conclusions were wrong. The information available today shows that the conclusions they arrived at were far, far from accurate. Now, this is what happens to so many who profess Christianity, who sit in a church on Sunday and leave basically unaffected. They're well-meaning people. They're sincere about their religious intentions, but they're far from understanding the heart of Christianity. 
They identify Christianity with the preconceived notion of Christian character. And this is seen in the lives of those with whom they have contact within the church. They see the character of those people. So they begin to measure their Christianity by the other people's character, and they contrast their lives and attitudes with those around them. So a church develops a certain attitude, a flavor. They seem to measure up, and they seem to match with everybody else, so they feel good about who they are and where they're at. But the average Joe attending church is generally far from what God intends. So the external information they're gathering is false. It's a false standard, much like what the Russians experienced. But it's low enough that it seems attainable. So really, I'm as good as the next guy. We look good, we sound good, and we attend a Christmas play together. We nod at each other, the Easter services. We put some money in the tray as it passes. The preacher even asks you to pray every now and then. So you've got to be okay. The fact is that many churches are filled with people who are close, as close as the creeds they have memorized and the verses that they have known for years due to repetition. But it's more than this. Christianity is a living, powerful, vibrant, and fulfilling faith. And unfortunately for so many, what is being portrayed as Christianity today is far less than what God desires for us. But this is the accepted norm. Think about this. Meditate upon it. Christianity is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing less than that is acceptable. Nothing. No religious motion is of any value if Christ is not the center. Christianity will never be understood apart from you knowing and enjoying a personal relationship with Christ himself. Nothing. Christianity is Christ alone. And Paul knew this. I cannot say that I've ever met anyone with the zeal and the desire and the devotion that even comes close to Paul. Paul wrote, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was stoned, he was lashed, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, but he never relented. He only grew stronger in his faith. Follow this with what he told the Galatians. He said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live right now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There you have Paul's bottom line. One was written early in Paul's Christian life and then the other from the, at, at the end while he was sitting in a prison cell. It starts and it finishes with Christ. Christ is what made Paul's life worth living. Well, what does it mean to say this, though? What does it mean to say that Christianity is Christ? This goes beyond a mission statement or a branding of a movement. Of what does life consist? Well, every individual that walks on the face of the earth has faith of some one sort or another. Faith in themselves, faith in water being cool to drink, faith that the sun's going to come up, faith that the moon will shine. We all believe something or someone. Men were created for intimate fellowship. Friendships are far more critical than what we think. No man is an island unto himself, we've heard said. We all follow a philosophy. Believe it or not, we do. Each one of us live by basic principles, and we follow them faithfully, maybe not realizing it, but we do. As Christians, we're to follow after Christ. 
Christianity is faith in Christ alone. Christianity is believing Christ. It's not faith in my faith in Christ that saves me. It's believing that Christ alone will save me. It's recognition and acknowledgement that you can do nothing to save yourself and that you deserve hell, the wrath of God, rather than the glory of heaven, and that Christ has provided salvation for you personally by dying for you personally. He bore the wrath of God that you deserved so that you would not have to face the wrath of God. Moreover, you embrace Christ as your Savior and Lord, and He is the King of all things, and you know it, and you submit to this as a Christian. But it's a loving submission. It's not because you have to grit your teeth and bear up. But it's a loving submission because you know that God cares for you. He loves you with an everlasting love. This is what Paul is telling us in Galatians 2.20. It's that pure and it's that simple. It's Christ. Paul left Antioch and headed to Galatia, a Roman province in what is now known as Turkey. Paul worked long and hard in this particular area, traveling there on each of his three missionary journeys. He stopped first in Cyprus, then he headed up to Pamphylia, then further inland to Pisidian Antioch, where the message of the gospel was being well received initially. Eventually, Paul and Barnabas were driven out of the district due to the jealousy of the Jews. The response of the people was tremendous, and the outpouring of true interest was amazing. And those who believed followed Paul because they wanted to hear more. From there, Paul headed to Iconium. Again, a large number of people there heard and believed, both Jew and Greek. Again, the Jews were enraged with jealousy and trouble arose. However, Paul stayed there for some time, teaching, preaching, and instructing. Those who hated the gospel threatened to stone Paul and Barnabas. They got wind of it, so they fled from this, and they continued spreading the gospel to those throughout the region. When they reached Lystra, Paul was stoned and left for dead. But God spared him. He got up after the stoning, and he walked right back into the city. He got his wounds healed, and the next day he headed out. Paul loved these people. He loved his people. He did not run from the trouble and forsake the message. He did not abandon the people. He didn't close up shop at the utterance of the governor. He did not quit in face of personal pain and loss. He gave his all. His life was on the line. And he did not back up one step from that commitment. This is the love of God in action. But like hungry vultures watching for food, the unbelieving Jews watched and waited. They swooped in after Paul departed, hoping to win back the crowds. They stuck their chest out and gave a great show of authority, and they spoke in the wisdom of men, trying to impress those who would listen. They taught that salvation, true salvation, depended at least in part on human goodness, good deeds. Traditions pointed to this. Centuries of tradition could not be ignored. Could these people have been wrong for so long? Paul, they said, was a charlatan, a muckraker, a liar. If you want to be part of the Jewish tradition, the Jewish faith, you must first become a Jew. You must be circumcised. You must keep the Jewish feast, and you must follow the law. Salvation is not by faith alone, is what they were teaching. But Paul was teaching the exact opposite. You're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. 
the Jews were angered, and they said, no, no, no. You must do many things to gain salvation. It's not that easy, Paul. Word traveled fast, and Paul heard of the people being misled. After he had left, the lies were filling the congregations. He was filled with righteous anger. These Jews were seeking to strip the gospel message from the minds of the people. Paul wrote to the Galatians, saying, I'm shocked. I am shocked that you're so quick to reject the one who called you by the grace of Christ, and that you're embracing a different gospel, which is not good news at all. Whoever you're listening to is perverting the message of Christ. Whoever is preaching something other than Christ alone, let that man be eternally damned. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone, not by tradition, not by being as good as you can be, and not by mutilating your body or attending the synagogue. You cannot let anyone strip away the message of Christ as if they were tearing away the clothing off a dead body or the wallpaper off a wall. Are you trusting in Christ for salvation? How about you? There's so many people who think they are, but they're held by the traditions of men. They believe it's a good, solid character. It's the creeds and obedience to the creeds. And it's all the ceremonies. My friend, it's not the church that saves. It's not the ceremony or the character. It is Christ. It is Christ alone. He bore our sins on the cross. He died in your stead. He was buried and he rose again. It was Christ who did these things, not an organization, not a denomination, not a tradition, and not some relics on the wall. There are many who are caught by Satan in their mind, and they're held by evil traditions. They worship things such as sticks and objects, statues of saints in the basilica at Rome, idols on the idol shelf in a small grass hut in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. Some are in expensive clothing, and some just wear dirty loincloth. But they're practicing the same things, only in different places. You can read and practice all the principles found in these Christian self-help books that point you to, the be, to be the best you now. You can read all these things and still end up in hell. And you can give all your money to the poor, and you can give your body to be burned. But if you do not have Christ, it's all in vain. These things will not save you, nor will they bring you closer to God. As a matter of fact, they will bring a greater separation between you and the God you want to know. Why? Because they're placing a greater confidence in you and your ability, and they're leading you away from the only sufficiency we have, Christ and Christ alone. Underline this, write it in the front of your Bible. Christianity is Christ and Christ alone. Christianity is fellowship with Christ. Now, when I was a young man, I moved to France in order to serve Christ. I was young and my faith was malformed. It was weak, to be honest. I had very little understanding of the Bible. I had very little understanding of people or how to walk with Christ. I, have a, I had a few men who were leading me and I was following them as best I could. I was following their instructions. I wanted to know Christ and to serve him above all else. And these men seemed to know Christ. So I was going to copy them. I was caught up in a personality trap. I tried to follow what these men were telling me, but I failed miserably. I was frustrated. And they were quick to let me know of my failures. Eventually, I had a breakdown. Something was wrong. Bad wrong. At one point, I took my Bible and I threw it over the fence in my backyard. I was done with this. Emotionally drained, 
confused and broken, I sat alone in my kitchen. Those were miserable days for me. The Lord was gracious, though. He didn't let me go. He actually convinced me that I should go get my Bible. So I climbed over the back fence and retrieved it. I walked back into the kitchen. I sat down and I began to read. And it was during this time that I began to understand that it was Christ alone. I'd been following men and listening to well-intentioned men, but I was wrong. My faith was almost wrecked, but God, who is rich in mercy, rescued me, and he pointed me to Jesus Christ. The Word of God began to minister to me in very real ways and began to mend my broken heart. Slowly, I began to find my footing in Christ. Slowly, I began to find that fellowship with Christ far surpasses anything either of these men had shown me. Christianity is not a method of believing. It is a fellowship with a person. And we're prone to lose communion with God in the cult of personality. We can lose sight of this so, so quickly. We side with a certain teacher, believing that he has a corner on the truth. Nobody else teaches the gospel like this guy. He's profound. But this is far from the truth. Read your Bible. Pray. Spend time alone with God, and you'll see what I mean. The Lord can show you truth in amazing ways, and He longs to do so. And this is not to condemn the teacher, but it is to say that Christianity is fellowshipping with and following Christ, not a man or a movement. Those who know Christ in such a way are not easily intimidated by or overly impressed by men. They do enjoy a fellowship, though, among men that is appreciated and shared among themselves. Why? Because Christ is the center of conversation. Not position, not power, politics, or persuasion. It's Christ. And we share this in common. And we have fellowship. Nobody tries to impress the other. We all recognize that it's Christ alone. And we respect this in one another. The Apostle John told us these things in his letter to the churches which had been caught up in the cult of personality and knowledge. They'd been listening to men who were leading them astray with bad teaching. This was a form of what is called Gnosticism, which is supposedly a secret higher knowledge. They believed they possessed a certain particular truth that everybody else was ignoring or rejecting. They were teaching in a certain way that other people just didn't seem to have a grip on. And John told these guys explicitly, We proclaim to you what we have seen. We've seen it. And we've heard it. We proclaim this to you so that you might have fellowship with us. And that our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Bad teaching can sneak into any church, and it can sneak into any mind that is left unguarded. Sincere people can be sincerely led astray, believing they have the necessary data to find out down the road that the information they had was sincerely wrong. Proper teaching leads to real fellowship. Fellowship leads to true friendship. Friendship leads to bonding together. This bonding leads to a solid fellowship that we know as the church. And the church is precious to the Lord. John taught these things to the church in order to make their joy complete. The greatest joys I find are when I see a friend that I haven't seen in quite some time, a true friend. We sit down and we catch up on life, we shake hands, and we know that afterward we have enjoyed a true time of rich fellowship. 
So many of us are missing this joy in our Christian experience, and it should not be. We're called to enjoy Christ, to fellowship with the God who created us. His presence brings joy. He says, in His presence is fullness of joy. And this joy is a calm, fixed assurance. And if there is no joy, I assure you that you can trace this back to a lack of fellowship, not with men and not with women, but with Christ. What is separating you from this fellowship? Time? Well, fix your schedule. A sinful behavior? Well, deal with your sin and run back to Christ. Too much religious activity? Well, stop. Read the Bible. Reread John 11. Martha had the same issue. There's nothing that can substitute for the cultivation of fellowship with God. Nothing. Christianity is following Christ. I'll say this over and over. Follow Christ. The fellowship that we find with Christ is not so much the fellowship of solicitude we spend in private time with Him. It's the fellowship in life. If our fellowship stops when we close our Bible after morning prayer, we're not fully understanding what is meant for me to live as Christ. Christianity engulfs the entirety of our lives from the time you get up in the morning till the time you go to bed and through the night. It governs all, all of our words, our thoughts, and our intentions. Christ goes with us into daily battle. The fellowship is something akin to a soldier marching into war. He knows the man on his right, and he knows the guy on his left. They're with him, but they see Christ, and he's the leader. And Christ calls us to follow, and we follow. Christ invited you and I to follow him. You cannot follow if your heart is distracted by other things or other people. I got married a few years ago, nearly four decades ago. And when I got married, the pastor said, forsaking all others, and I thought about that, and it wasn't even an issue. I married my wife. You cannot follow Christ unless you forsake all others. Unless you forsake all that keeps you from looking to him alone. Look in the Bible. See if what I'm telling you is accurate. Peter and John were fishermen by trade. The Lord called them. This is how they made their living. This is how they paid their bills. Christ called and they forsook their nets. James and John did the same thing. They too were fishermen. Matthew left his money tables and his job as a tax collector. You'll have to forsake your sin, your sinful and selfish ambitions your own preoccupation with yourself, and your own conception of exactly who you are and how important you are. This is the fixed disposition of the Christian. Forsaking all others, I commit to Christ. Paul described it like this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In the early days of the church, rabbis were particular when choosing disciples, and disciples were ones who wanted to study the Torah under a particular rabbi. When he chose a disciple, that man would commit to following the rabbi daily. And when the rabbi moved, the disciple followed. The rabbi literally could have an entourage following him, which would appear ridiculous to us. But to them, this was an honor, a privilege, and a joy. Today, 
If people see us following Christ in such a similar way, they see us as fools. They see this as ridiculous. But we follow Christ in a similar manner. People recognize the disciples due to the fact that they were seen so often following after Christ. In the Western world today, men are far too independent to even allow themselves to be depicted in such a manner. We can group ourselves around a political ideology or a sports team or corporate ties and not seem to be strange. But when we do this in a religious circle or with a religious organization, we're part of a cult. We're those who are the domestic terrorists. We're extreme. But listen, my friend. We follow Christ. We follow him to the cross. And through this crucifixion, we follow him to glory. And we forsake all others for Christ alone. We're crucified with him. God does this work within us. And through death, we find the life and the resurrection power of the living Christ. And we follow. Thank you very much for following along in our study on Philippians, and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated, and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.